This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're right here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. And of course, Carol, that's part of a team of 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. And Jason, you can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. Let's get you up to date on what's going on with the virus. There have been many, many headlines today. Let's bring in our next guest and find out how they are dealing with COVID-19. Dr. Harold Paz is the Executive Vice President, Chancellor for Health Affairs at The Ohio State University, CEO of Wexner Medical Center. It's a big enterprise. It's got hospitals, a college of medicine, research, and so much more. By the way, he was the former Chief Medical Officer at Aetna, and he joins us on the phone from Columbus, Ohio. Dr. Paz, nice to have you here with us. There is a lot going on right now uh, when it comes to the virus. Tell us a little bit about your experience in dealing with it and trying to get ahead of it. Well, thank you very much, Carol. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Um, So Columbus, Ohio, in the center of the state, the state capital of Ohio, we've certainly seen the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic here in this state. Um, I'm pleased to report that um, we're faring well because of a lot of early efforts here in Ohio and terms of social distancing and, and taking the steps necessary to do everything we can to keep the infection from spreading. Nonetheless, we are, like every other part of the country, seeing individuals who are being hospitalized uh, with, with the infection. Um, what we've done in Columbus is uh, unique, I think, in many ways, and it really reflects what we call the Columbus Way, um, an initiative that started during the, the Great Recession, where 12 of our CEOs in this community got together Uh, formed something called the Columbus Partnership to identify ways that the community could work together to come up with solutions through partnerships to advance economic development. And along those same lines, when we were in the early phase of this pandemic, the four major health systems in Ohio, in Columbus, Ohio, got together as well. And we said that um, even though we're four separate health systems and we compete, What could we do to work collaboratively to uh, provide the resources necessary to address the pandemic? So the four systems got together and uh, we took over the convention center. We set up a surge facility with over a thousand beds and it should be necessary um, if more patients were being admitted to the hospital than any one hospital could handle. We then pulled in all the community hospitals across the central and southeast region of Ohio almost 40 community hospitals and brought them into a single network so we could create what's been termed a a virtual hospital without walls so that no matter what was going on in this region, we would have the resources and the capacity to deal with the surge. The good news is, is that uh, we never had to use, at least to Mm -hmm. date, we've never had to use the convention facility, but it just reflects, I think, this culture, this unique culture here in this community. We've also partnered with the Battelle Research Institute across the street here from the Wexner Medical Center at Ohio State, and we've partnered with them. We've developed an early uh, viral um, laboratory where we could detect the virus. Uh, we went from being able to do 40 viral tests a day early in the pandemic. Today, we have the capacity to do over 4,000 tests wow. a day. Big job. Um, we, uh, more than half of the tests we do now is not for our own patients, but for patients across the state. Right. And uh, that's had a huge impact as well, obviously. What I'm very proud of is the fact that the turnaround time for this test, 
on some of the machines is 45 minutes, and the sensitivity rate is over 99%, which is mm. extraordinarily important for us to detect the virus. So, Dr. Paz, it sounds like taking you guys very smartly sort of took a cue from what had happened on each of the coasts and, and really got yourself prepared. I do wonder what you observe, in part because we were just talking a few minutes ago about, you know, a graduation ceremony uh, at the school where you had sort of some folks doing the right things. You had, you know, some students and maybe kids will be kids uh, acting in a way that you might expect them to in terms of celebrating and things like that, even though the university was sort of doing all the right things. What have you seen in terms of candidly public behavior, even as you are very ready medically? Well, you know, um, as, as you said, uh, it, it really is uh, dependent upon uh, the, the individuals. And one thing that we're doing is spending an enormous amount of time on education, public education, um, working in the local communities. Again, part of the Columbus way to get into local communities. This week, for example, we distributed what we call community care kits where we handed out face masks, hand sanitizer, soap, the basics and, and information, which is critical, about why social distancing is so important. We've taken steps where we want to make sure that every we have roughly 30,000 employees at the Ohio State Wexner Medical Center at our seven hospitals. Everyone has to do a temperature check before they come to work. They have an app on their phone. They have to answer four basic questions. Their phone will turn green when they show up at the facility and we let them in, assuming they're wearing a face mask. If it turns red, we ask them to stay at home and self-quarantine for 14 days, and we monitor their symptoms. We've worked with the business community um, through the, uh, the governor's economic advisory uh, board to help spread that kind of technology across the state, because these are the important steps we need to take. The first step is social distancing. The first step is to protect the population through what are very practical approaches to stop the spread. The second phase is obviously for those individuals whose, whose own immune system over-responds in many ways to a viral infection to offer them the hospital facilities they need to have to get them back to recovery. And obviously the third phase is the economic phase right. and dealing with all those issues. Hey, Dr. Paz, hang on for a second. We're going to come back and continue the conversation because I am curious about everything that you're saying and really how it changes our world on the other side. Uh, so we'll get into that in just a moment. Dr. Harold Paz is CEO at Wexner Medical Center, uh, Chancellor of Health Affairs at Ohio State University. He's joining us on the phone from Columbus, Ohio. So we'll continue that conversation uh, in just a moment. Let's get back to our conversation with Dr. Harold Harold Paws, excuse me. He is the Chief Executive Officer of Wexner Medical Center, also the Chancellor of Health Affairs at Ohio State University. Joining us on the phone from Columbus, Ohio. Dr. Paz, thank you so much for sticking with us. Uh, I want to jump in exactly where uh, Carol suggested, which is help us understand, you know, what this looks like, especially in the sort of short to midterm. How does life get back to normal and how does a hospital system get back to normal? How does healthcare care get back to normal? Yeah, so thank you, Jason. So I'd say a couple of things. One is more and more testing and, uh, and follow-up on contacts, uh, really, really important. One of the challenges we had early on was having the test kits. And, you know, interestingly, the swabs that were uh, necessary to do the, the throat swabs and, and nose swabs were made in northern Italy, of all places. So we had to go into the business of making our own swabs on 3D printers, and then we needed the viral testing 
media the, to put the swabs into, um, and there was short supply. So we went into uh, the business of producing our own uh, viral transport media to, to make the test kits. We've shipped that now to a number of places, including New York City, enough to do uh, 50,000 50, people. Um, it's really important to take this innovation and, and move it to the front line, and, and it's about doing it on a day-to-day -day basis. The hospitals here are, are slowly opening up. We had, even before um, we were required to do so, we stopped doing elective cases. We wanted to make sure that we were preserving PPE because the masks, uh, all the different types of masks, the gowns, the gloves, were essential to protecting our workforce from getting infected and also to protect patients as well. So now that we have adequate supply in, in most cases of PPE, we have enough testing capability and we're doing testing now for patients that come in that are gonna have procedures done on them. We can slowly open up our facilities. We, uh, we now move to doing um, procedures that don't require overnight hospitalization as the first phase of that in concert with uh, our state. We're waiting now for a go-ahead to start doing overnight surgical procedures again, slowly opening up facilities because we recognize that during the past two months, because of the pandemic, patients have had to postpone different types of healthcare services that they very much need, and particularly diagnostic tests and a whole array right. of different types of tests that are if, important. If I may break in, Dr. Paz, help sure. me understand, though, because you understand certainly from someone who is overseeing a large medical institution as well mm -hmm. as, you know, involved very much with the university. Mm -hmm. And I do wonder, is it upon all of us now that we need to buy into getting a test and being traced in order for us to fully open up the economy? Yeah, so, you know, that's a, that's a really important question. And, and I think that one of the challenges is to identify who needs to be tested. We have protocols in place here at the medical center and in Ohio about who should be tested. And uh, testing is really important to identify people that are carrying the virus. But at the same time, what we have to focus on is antibody testing as well. And antibody testing that's specific to identifying antibodies for this particular coronavirus. There are a number of coronaviruses, some of them cause the common cold. Right. We wanna find the antibodies that cause this one. In addition to that, what we're really interested in are neutralizing antibodies. That's the second part of the test. And then understanding of those neutralizing antibodies tell us if someone's immune. And that's really the gold standard here, understanding if these antibody tests predict immunity. Because if we understand that and an individual knows that they have some degree of immunity, it might be only for six months to a year, it might be longer than that, that becomes obviously a very significant game changer if someone can't get reinfected and doesn't show the symptoms of the disease, which is what puts people in the hospital. As someone who understands the medical side of this, as someone also who understands the importance of the business side of this and also an economic side of this and the consequences, right, of having a hospital that isn't, you know, doing those normal procedures, I do wonder how you see the balance of reopening society and yet keeping it safe. Or do we have to reopen society and understand that there will be a loss of lives and there will be probably a second wave, but that's part of the process. And I'm just curious how you see that. Well, without a doubt, we have to reopen society. And as, as you mentioned, you know, wearing my other hat as Chancellor for Health Affairs at the Ohio State University, this is the third largest university campus in the nation here in Columbus. Uh, this is something that we're addressing each and every day. Everything from our, 
educational programs to athletics to all the things that we do that and our research i mean fundamental research that goes on here each and every day these are all the things we're looking at right now how do we carefully reopen the campus everyone's working from home on the campus side obviously not the hospital side our hospitals everyone's coming to work but for the rest of our university uh, most of our employees, our faculty and staff are, are working from home. Our students are doing distance learning. How do we begin to re-engage? And it's this process of doing all the things that I just mentioned for the hospital that we now have to put in place in our businesses, at our universities, in, in all the different fundamental aspects of life so that we can begin to reopen and get back to some degree of normalcy, recognizing that until we have fully addressed the pandemic, complete return to normalcy will be a challenge. And where we find a hot spot, we have to right. move in quickly and eradicate it. We have to take the steps to prevent it from spreading broadly. And this will be this back and forth that will be going on for some time, as we're seeing in other parts of the world where they experienced the virus yeah. before we did. All right. Well, unfortunately, we got to leave it there. I really wanted to talk Buckeye football, but we can't do that today. We'll have to have you back. Dr. Harold Bossy is the CEO of Wexner Medical Center, Chancellor of Health Affairs at Ohio State University. Joining us on the phone from Columbus. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Carol? Yeah, the cover story this week, uh, it's a good one. The company, and so timely, the company and drugs so many are talking about. We're talking about Gilead. We're talking about remdesivir. And safe to say the whole world is watching. This cover story on newsstands, online at Bloomberg.com, and on the Bloomberg Terminal. Uh, Robert Langreth, who is healthcare reporter at Bloomberg News, he wrote it. He joins us on the phone from Massachusetts. Bob, it's a great one. Tell us a little bit about how you approach this one, because I feel like it's a huge story. <laughs> Well, yeah, it's a big story. And from the beginning of this, it was kind of fairly clear that there weren't that many drugs that could do that had like lab data against coronaviruses that could go right into trials, right into human trials. And this was one of the kind of handful of them. So from very early on, you know, if there was going to, was going to be an early drug for coronavirus, this was likely to be it. So I was paying attention early on. I was talking to Gilead, you know, early on trying to get interviews with some of their executives, which was very hard to do. But what, one thing we were able to get, you know, before things completely closed up, we were able to get a uh, freelance photographer, you know, into uh, one of their, their plants where they're filling the vials out in California. This is right as everything was shutting down in mid-March and, you know, probably one of the last days we could have done it. We got a photographer there and got some of these you know, great pictures and great videos, which just, you know, really helped make the story. And then uh, I just kept talking to them and, uh, you know, get, getting some more detail about the early history of this compound and then, you know, finally I was able to uh, get an interview with one of the top, you know, right. manufacturing experts who told me, you know, all the, the 70 different chemicals went into this and, they, you know, 25 different steps. And he kind of compared it to uh, making a very uh, fancy, very specific, you know, loaf of, of type of bread at a bakery. You know, if you don't if you don't order a huge amount of your specialty flour in advance, you have to wait for the new crop of wheat to grow. That's going to be a big delay. So that's what right. they did right. in January. They, all the specialty ingredients, you know, they order from the suppliers in China and Europe way in advance. That was like the biggest, smartest thing that they did. Yeah, it's that's really such a key detail. I uh, want to bring in Joel Weber, the editor of Bloomberg Business Week. He joins us from Brooklyn. And Joel, you put this on the cover. It makes a huge amount of sense because uh, it's such a good read. Give us the context from your perspective because you're looking across all of these stories, not just as it relates to the coronavirus, but across the world of business. 
So, I, you know, I think this story's significance is is huge. Um, and it's also the way that I, I think is the best way to think about this. It's almost like the most hopeful news, the only hopeful news yeah. we've basically had to date in this uh, coronavirus saga. You, you know, it's like it, it just feels like it's one bit of bad news after the next. And it's almost like this cacophony of incompetence sometimes. And so I, what I think Bob was able to do in this Gilead story was actually show, like, here's a, an example of, like, one of the only ones, really, of a company that had incredible foresight and preparedness. And, you know, had they not actually ordered the raw materials that they needed to, to actually make this treatment back in January, even before it was, you know, before we knew how bad this was going to be, had they not done that back then, we would not have the treatment that we suddenly have, you know, and like to be sure, this is not a cure. It's a treatment. Mm-hmm. It takes coronavirus from being a, a 15 day hospitalization down to maybe like an 11 COVID um, down to like an 11. So, you know, it's it's a modest improvement over nothing, but at least it's something. And, you know, Bob, as, as you sort of you know, reported around this, you know, it's actually even more incredible than that because this was a drug that actually, you know, it's been around for like 11 years now and it never could find a purpose even, right? What's the backstory? Yeah, they first invented it for, you know, looking for hepatitis C drugs, but it was hard to administer and they had better ones that were pills, so it was kind of shelved for that. And then, you know, they tried it for, you know, Ebola, and they uh, spent years on that, you know, because at first they tested it for one Ebola outbreak, but then the outbreak faded before they could get it into human trials, and they tested it in a recent Ebola outbreak, and then it didn't work that well. So they, uh, but in the, and so they were trying to figure out what to do next, you know, and when the COVID came along. And they did the the thing that they did differently was they did not in January, they didn't assume the best case scenario. They didn't say, hey, let's wait a few weeks and see if this goes away. They kind of said, hey, in case this is a pandemic, we're going to order a whole bunch of stuff right now. And that's just very different from what a lot of other folks did. I have to say what's really cool in this story, and if, if people don't totally understand how significant this is, it, it, you write in the story how Anthony Fauci has pointed out that he has likened the trial of remdesivir to the first big trial of AZT, the first drug for yeah. HIV, right? And so then you understand, because that too was something we just couldn't figure out a treatment. And so you understand, Bob, how remdesivir is really a first very important step. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the way to think of this is, you know, is as a, a first step, a first thing. There's, you know, as the CEO of Gilead himself says, we're going to need a lot more drugs. They're working on better drugs, uh, better uh, ways to administer it. Right now, it's an infusion, and we're definitely going to need vaccines. So this doesn't, you know, solve the problem. This is, you know, as, as you said, a first step from the sickest, you know, hospitalized patients. So, Bob, the other element that I just want to ask about is cost because Gilead actually doesn't have the greatest reputation um, on, on pricing, drug pricing um, in its history. Um, and yet this is a drug that, you know, the first 1.5 million vials of this, they're going to give away for free. And, and Wall Street kind of doesn't like that price. Uh, right. So it's going to get, you know, very interesting as, as a, if they go through this 1.5 million vial donation and, you know, there are in a couple of months, you know, there, there aren't, you know, there's still a lot of cases and they, people still need their drug. Yet. What are they going to do? How are they going to price it? That's going to be, you know, that's the next 
big debate that's kind of shaping up right now, and you know, Wall Street kind of wants or expects them to charge, you know, around four or five thousand dollars, you know, for a five to ten day course. And you know, there's other people on the public health side that want them want them to practically, you know, give it away for like ten dollars, you know, to cover their manufacturing costs. So there's like a huge debate, you know, shaping up there, and that's going to be you know the next thing to watch. There's certainly going to be a big debate about you know about the cost of this drug and what's important about what they do or don't do about the price of this drug is that uh, it, it may be the case that this drug is obsolete six or eight months from now as better things come along. Everyone hopes for that. Uh, but the price that they set kind of sets, may set a precedent, you know, for all other COVID treatments uh, to come in the future. So that's why it's an important debate to watch. And so, Bob, just real quick, quick, about 30, 45 seconds left, uh, put this in the context of, of sort of the whole fight here, the whole sort of medical fight against this disease. Are we right to be super optimistic about this or how much does this represent in, in the broader perspective? Well, you know, I think this is kind of the first initial uh, step based on, like, drugs are kind of already on laboratory shelves or able to put into trials. The next thing that's going to come after that is likely uh, there's a bunch of uh, custom-designed monoclonal antibody treatments that several companies are about to go into trials, and those are thought to have a relatively high probability of succeeding, and we might get some results of that. Uh, late summer, and then right. after that, we'll get the sense about you know some of these early vaccine trials and and whether these vaccines are going to work, and if so, how well. Well, it's it's a great read. It's the cover story, and I highly recommend it. Bob Langreth, thank you so much, healthcare reporter at Bloomberg News, along with Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. In today's Business Week Economics segment, we're delighted to have with us Dr. Ellen Hughes-Cromwick. She is resident fellow at the think tank Third Way, and she is joining us on the phone from Ann Arbor, Michigan. She's also, we should point out, former chief economist of the U.S. Department of Commerce during the Obama administration and former chief global economist at Ford Motor Company. And uh, welcome to Bloomberg. Nice to have you here with us. Great. Thank you very much. You know, we were talking about, we kicked off our broadcast saying, you know, it's a health crisis, but it has become an economic crisis. And I am curious, you know, you had to, when I think about your time either at the government or even at Ford, you know, figure out what the forecast was. When you look at this environment, um, Ellen, how do you see it? And what do you think the future looks like? Right. Thank you. Um, You know, we've got a lot of uncertainty out there. And I think your guests really hit the nail on the head, that there's a lot of different potential outcomes. I think just from my experience at Ford and also being at Commerce, you know, there's a lot of um, ways that the economy can evolve once we get past this initial shutdown. My concern when I look out into the third and fourth quarters is really focused on consumer sentiment. Carol, you know, what is the consumer going to do in the mid-May report that, um, you know, the University of Michigan just released? They find that, you know, 50 percent of the people are concerned about their health more than their finances. Mm. Only 17 percent said they were, you know, the finances were their biggest concern. That means to me that we have a persistent slowdown, i.e. recession, as we get out into the latter part of this year and into next. That's my concern. 
And so, Ellen, I, you know, I do wonder, and, and it's great to talk to someone like you because you do have some very practical uh, experience here. And, and I wonder what you make of the debate about essentially how to administer the best type of stabilization and stimulus from a fiscal perspective, because there's a lot of debate around that, and, and I think we're about to have a lot more debate about it uh, in, in Washington. What's the right answer in terms of getting money to people in a way that will actually help them, but also help the broader economy? Jason, I think that's exactly the right question. You probably heard uh, Chair Powell say on Wednesday that their study showed that 40% of households earning $40,000 lost a job in March. 40%. And he really hinted that this is a fiscal job. We need to make sure that we have government fiscal support for the calamity that is out there on the streets of this country. I think that the HEROES Act is a great way to open up the discussion about, you know, really four legs to the fiscal chair. One is direct payments to individuals. These people need to be able to have some income while we're shut down. And that should give them some confidence, too, which I, I mentioned earlier, I think is a big issue for the second half of this year. The other big leg to the school uh, to the stool is uh, state and local support, relief to the communities. The HEROES Act does address that. Health care is the third piece. And then, as you know, businesses need more help. Right. We've got a lot of potential for bankruptcies coming up here. So you don't think about, at this point, right, it's clear. We don't need to worry about the deficit. It's just about making sure people are taken care of. You know, Carol, absolutely. We, we've got to make sure we know how to take care of this economy and our people, everybody, not just, you know, people that are at the top or the middle. We've got to really reach down. I mean, we, we have a couple of uh, experts that released a paper today on food stamps. Can you imagine the lines? Have you seen we these have. pictures? Yeah. Yep. Uh, I mean, we're the U.S., the United States of America. That can't happen here, can it? So that, do you, that needs to be really addressed. We right. can't have people not having enough food or have food insecurity. Are you nervous about the reopenings? We heard certainly Jay Powell. Well, even Dr. Fauci saying about reopening too soon means probably a second wave, and that will be even worse for the economic outlook. And of course, Jay Powell hit it head on. Um, I'm curious how you see it, especially as more areas are reopening around the country. We have about a minute or so left. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm reading everything I can about what the health experts are saying. Um, I'm devouring all the information. I'm not a health expert. I don't want to comment on that. I do know that we've got to listen to these experts and do what they say, because the studies show that when you restrict in order to address the spread of a pandemic, that the economy does better later on. 
there's some really great studies out there from the Spanish flu pandemic that show if you ver- if you restrict and you're really tough to begin with, you do better off. Right. You do better later on. Yeah. I think we should make a lesson, a page out of that book. Well, it uh, it certainly is the the debate of our times in many ways, and the choices we make are going to uh, have real serious consequences. That's for sure on both sides, both the health and the economic side. Ellen Hughes Cromwick, thank you so much, senior resident fellow at the Think Tank Third Way, joining us on the phone from Ann Arbor, Michigan. Really smart. Oh my God, I love that conversation, and it it's similar to Professor Robert Barro at yeah. Harvard University, like the lessons from the Spanish flu and why those restrictions. This is exactly what he talked about, yeah. and the research why those restrictions need to remain in place longer. And I think, you know, this is where we have to make that connection between um, keeping shut now to make sure that you can end this yeah. crisis because it'll be better for the economy longer term. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Back with us is Brad McMillan, Chief Investment Officer and Managing Principal at Commonwealth Financial Network. He's joining us on the phone from Waltham, Massachusetts. Hey, Brad, uh, nice to have you here with us. Um, So here we are, what, eight, nine weeks of working from home. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. It's, it's, it's been an interesting time, you know, family, there's been ups and downs, figuring out. I think I'm actually more productive in some ways. Are you, are you working from home? We are, we're doing our show right now. We've been doing that for, this is our ninth week. Ninth and, week. We're finishing yeah. up our ninth week of uh, doing this remotely. I'm in the suburbs north of New York City, and Carol's just uh, west of New York City. We've got, you know, sort of producers and all of our guests, obviously, remote. And it's a very, I mean, what... What started as strange now seems sort of normal, and I guess that's that's what happens, right? It's completely transparent. I mean, you guys are doing a fantastic job doing this. Oh, well, thank you. We appreciate cool. that. Um, how is your team doing? I mean, like, and I think we talked about this a little bit last time, but but I do wonder, you know, you have a business that, you know, has folks spread out uh, all over the place already. How do you manage it in, in a situation like this and, and maintain the, the level of service that I know you guys take great pride in? Well, I'll tell you, I mean, I've been absolutely amazed at just how smoothly it's gone. I mean, we have about 98% of our employees working remotely, working from home. And part of part of what we've been able to do this is we, we're really a technology leader. I mean, our systems have worked pretty much flawlessly throughout. And part of it is just we have great employees, so we really don't have to worry about them working and delivering service. In fact, we've seen service scores tick up during this time, which wow. is what I expected, but it's just been great to see. Well, how will it change, Brad, how you guys maybe do things going forward? I mean, we've heard from a lot of big banks kind of weighing in on this, and not necessarily it's one story or one theme, but, you know, we keep going back to a conversation we had with James Gorman at Morgan Stanley early on, and he's saying, you know, 
you know, their team, you know, everybody or, or a large majority are, are working at home and things are doing okay. And it's making them reassess real estate needs going forward. Uh, and I know that story is being debated, but I just do wonder how much of this sticks maybe with how you guys do things going forward. I think it certainly changes things going forward. I mean, what we're really wrestling with right now is not can we operate remotely. We can. We've proven that. But we, we focus very closely on our culture, you know, on people wanting to work there, on being a multiple best place to work. How does that scale into more remote working? You know, and that's what we're trying to figure out. How do we give people the flexibility and still maintain, you know, the culture? And that's the top priority right now. Yeah. Well, and meanwhile, in, in the market, it, it feels like this is a market that remains a little bit in search of itself. You know, we were talking about this week throughout the week, uh, Brad, is sort of a reality check week in many ways, hearing from the Fed chair, hearing from Dr. Fauci, you know, hearing from, from CEOs and investors and and others. We're going to end up, it looks like, down for the week, but but on a day where we got more dismal economic news, you know, the, the market is is looking for you know, and, and finding and has found a, a bit of a, a bid and a, a bit of optimism. What do you make of that? What sort of eye are you looking at this market with? I am looking at this is it's a classic case of buy the rumor, sell the news. You know, we had an assumption early on. We saw we've we've been seeing the the uh, pandemic data improve over the past several weeks. I mean, the total improvement has been enormous, and we're actually getting to a place where we can start thinking about opening up responsibly. And that's exactly what's happening. We're opening up, and. You know, the market has been buying the rumor that the recovery was going to be V-shaped, everything was going to be fine, except that now that we're actually starting to do it, we're realizing, the market's realizing, it's not that simple. And I think it's the market taking that expectation of a smooth recovery and starting to discount it for the problems that we know we're going to see. We are going to recover, but it's not going to be as smooth as uh, maybe the market and analysts were expecting. So that sounds... um pretty cool, calm, and collected. In, in other words, because I think, I feel like, Brad, that this week, Jason and I have been calling it reality check because it does feel like we had a you know rally last week and then all of a sudden everybody, because of Fauci and Powell, said, wait a minute. And I do wonder how you see it on the other side. I mean, we're hearing less of a V-shaped recovery and more of a the w. Nike swoosh or more of a W or, you know, we're going to be along the bottom for some time. See, I look at that and... I think it's probably going to be better than that, but we're actually going to know a lot more in the next week, or excuse me, the next month. Mm -hmm. Because what we're looking at here is we've got the growth rate down below 2%, you know, the, the daily case growth rate. We've seen the testing start to go up. We've seen, um, you know, they're real. we actually saw the number of active cases tick down for one day this week. So we're getting close to the end of the first phase, mm. and the real question we need to answer is we're going to see some second waves. How bad is it going to be? You know, because right now the economy is trying to find a balance or the country is trying to find a balance between the medical risks and the economic and social risks. And I think right now we're trending towards, you know, we've sort of got the medical risks under control. So we're going to start minimizing the economic and social risks. And as people get that, we're actually going to see confidence recover because at least there's an end in sight. We hope, and and I, I guess the the one well, there will be. It's just a case of timing, right? 
and what right. that and what that looks like, right? Or how long it takes to get back to normal. Like our own Bloomberg Economy folks talking with Carl Riccadonna, they're talking about, you know, Brad. I think twenty twenty three before we get back to levels that we saw pre COVID nineteen. Does that kind of fit into your? I'm just curious what your team is in terms of outlook and strategy. What kind of outlook are they talking about? A little bit more optimistic than that. We think it's faster than that. When you look at pretty much all of the previous disasters we've had, typically things get back to normal within or pretty close to normal within a year or two. And certainly it's different this time. I get that. This really is different. On the other hand, we've already made major accommodations. We're already figuring out how to work under the new constraints. You know, to say that it will take the U.S. economy three years to figure out, figure things out. That's just not consistent with past experience. Yeah. And if you look at the adjustment right now in Asia, first of all, they've been through this before. They went through this with SARS, and they figured out a way to live with it within a year or two. And now they've largely accommodated to this most recent pandemic. So there's historical evidence to say we can figure this out, and it's not going to take three years. All right. Well, nice to end the week on a note of optimism, at least the trading week. Brad McMillan, great to have you back with us. Chief Investment Officer, Managing Principal at Commonwealth Financial Network. One of the reasons I like talking to him is obviously he's got a big job with Commonwealth, but yeah, he's an entrepreneur. You know, he's worked in different businesses uh, over time and uh, has a nice sense about him for the broader economy. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. Thank you.